0: Okay, I'm feeling very vineyard today. <sighs> a couple of weeks ago we were doing some, uh, some training with the kinship leaders and we had a time of worship before everything like we always do. And anyways, during this time of worship, uh, this really odd thing pops into my head, and it was, um, you all know the movie Cool Runnings? Great flick. <laughs> It's a really good flick. And um, anyways, there's this scene in the movie where it's freezing cold in the middle of Calgary and, and Sanka, who's my favorite character in that movie, he cracks me up. And he's standing before a, a fire in a barrel with all of these other athletes and he's warming his hands and he goes, I'm feeling very Olympic today. And um, it's just, that cracks me up. Anyways, this, this scene from the movie pops into my head during worship and I said, okay, God, that's a bit weird. I don't know why you're doing that. And, um, and he said, because that's how I know you feel about the movement that you're a part of. And he was obviously right. God's always right. But he was, he was right. I love this movement called the Vineyard. I'm proud to be a part of it and even prouder to be called to serve her and serve you in that place. I love the Vineyard movement. And um, just this morning again was another little tick of the box, I guess, for, for me in that. I, I love this place, um, and we're going to miss being here. For those of you who don't know, in 13 weeks, Naomi and the girls and I are moving to Melbourne to pass the, the Westgate Vineyard in Victoria, and um, I was feeling a little bit nostalgic this morning, so I just that just came out then. <laughs> OK, let's actually get to this stuff. Uh, During the week, Kirk and I were talking, and um, this is another thing that I love about the vineyard, so I'm going to go back there. This is another thing I love about the vineyard. There is room for mistakes. There is room to get it wrong. And during the week, um, Kirk and I were talking, and he realized that he said something last week that wasn't quite accurate. And so this is coming from our senior pastor, who's now on holidays. Bless him, God. Bless him. Let the sun shine and not rain down there on the beach. Um, But this is our senior pastor. So if he can make mistakes, we all can make mistakes. And one of the things that he said last week was that there is nowhere in the Old Testament that God is referred to as Father by people. And we started, we had a bit of a look at that and found out that wasn't quite right. (laughs) So I just wanna, he asked me to just bring a bit of correction to that. So I'm gonna do that quickly before we move on. there are two main areas in the Old Testament that God is referred to as father by people. It's in the story of David and Solomon where God's promise to David and Solomon is that God will be their father and they will be their son if they follow the covenant based on that Old Testament covenant. If they follow that and they follow God, God will be their father. If, he, if they don't, he won't be. Also in Isaiah, Isaiah 63 and 64, uh, the prophet previous to that had been outlaying the nature of the kingdom to come and who the Messiah would be. At the very end of his book, he, um, he's, there's, it's, a, it's a series of chapters of lament as he looks at the, the state of his people and his heart's broken for them and he's asking God, would that come for my people? And in the course of asking for the, the new covenant to be established, for the kingdom to come and the Messiah to set them free, he says, would you be our father? And so in the Old Testament, we see this thing where God, uh, even in the, in the hearts of the people, is looking forward to the kingdom coming and God being our father when all of the barriers are removed. We're going to have a look at this a little bit today, this morning as well. Where all the barriers are removed and he can be our father. And so the Old Testament does reference God as Father, but it's looking forward. Um, just quickly, there's also uh, another reference where God speaks of himself as Father in Jeremiah 3. In Jeremiah 3, at the beginning of uh, Jeremiah's prophetic ministry, I guess, uh, God's pouring out his heart as to, the, the again, the state of, of their people. And, um, and as he's doing that, God says his heart's broken for his people, that they haven't chosen him, that they haven't chosen to follow him, that they haven't let God be this wonderful God to them. And he says, I thought they'd call me Father. I thought they'd call me Father. And so everything in the Old Testament points towards Jesus, especially the nature of the Father. And, and, and our, the fullness of that relationship with God as Father doesn't come into fullness until Jesus comes and the new covenant is established. That one was for free. So that was just some stuff from last week that that Kirk had asked me to sort out. Okay, we're going to play a video clip. Some of you may have seen this. It was posted on the Vineyard Facebook page. We're just going to quickly play this. This is a cracking clip and then we're going to get into it. Neat, huh? I like that. I wanted to start there. Some time ago, um, one of my quiet places, everybody has a quiet place with God, and whatever that looks like. Now, that doesn't need to be locked in a room, in a state of meditation. Well, for some people, that may be. For me, it's not. (laughs) For me, it's not. I need to be busy. And in being busy... Allows my heart and my mind to be still, and one of the ways that uh, that I like to do that is um, by running. Um, well, I, I don't so much run anymore as I'm getting older. It's more of a jog. So I don't know I'm getting old. Jody and I were talking about this this morning. <laughs> getting old. Um, yeah, I lost a few of you there. <laughs> one of the ways I like to do that is by exercising, by running. And at one time when I was out running, and was having a great time with Jesus, worshipping Jesus as I'm running, uh, he says to me, he puts this saying in my head, it's a very well-known saying, that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist. And I said, okay. And Jesus said, that's not true. He said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the children of God they're not the children of God. That's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. He's not playing tricks with those who don't know Jesus. He's playing tricks with us. Because he wants us not to know who we are. He wants us not to come into the fullness of our identity in Jesus. Because in that place, we are dangerous. In that place, we are free. And in that place, he has no control. They have no control over us. They cannot manipulate us and control us. One really important understanding of of, and we're actually going to do this next week, of who the enemy is in relationship to us. We are their toys. That is how they view us. And they just want to play with us and manipulate us. And when we know who we are, when we stand in our identity and we're confident in that, and we, we the fullness of our faith and our trust is put in Jesus, they have no grip on us. Or when they do try to grab a hold of us, it dissipates quickly because they will continue to keep doing that. So, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the children of God they're not the children of God. If you've got your Bibles, if you want to open them up to Ephesians 2, I love the book of Ephesians. I love the whole book, but I love the book of Ephesians. Um, As Paul is speaking, the the church in Ephesus in particular really reminds me culturally of a lot of what we are dealing with here today, presently. Uh, In in Ephesus, Ephesus was the the cultural center of uh, the the goddess Artemis and the, the big temple was there of Artemis. And the church was planted right in the middle of that thing, Uh, and so a lot of the things that were going on in the spirit are very similar to what we face here. Materialism was rampant. Uh, Morality was almost non-existent. It was a little bit better than it was in Corinth, but it wasn't, still wasn't all that good. And as a as a picture, and as it seems for me, anyways, this letter resonates clearer than than many to where we are today for me might not be for you that's okay the second chapter let's start in verse one as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that we have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. In Christ Jesus... In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Excellent. So Paul here, he's looking at the two natures and the two kingdoms that are at play in the earth today. There is on one hand the kingdom of Satan and on the other the kingdom of God. And we are by nature either children of Satan or children of God. Just to to lay something out quickly... um, to, to be a child of one, of one or the other we come under their authority or rule even with my kids now they come under my authority and rule even though for anybody who knows my girls they would probably say that my girls have me wrapped around their little finger and so that might not work it still works they come under my authority and rule now this is a, a in a sense, a weaker picture because as they grow, they will come to maturity and they will no longer be under my rule and my authority. They will come out from under there and they will be responsible for themselves. For all of us though, we exist under rule, under authority. We, no matter, and there is no maturing period that will outgrow that. From the time we're born to the time we die, we live under one of two rules and we're born into one. You know, we get that thing up there? Eventually, that's cool. Um, Adam and Eve, when they were created by God and lived in the garden, they were given dominion and they lived under the dominion and rule of God, completely and fully. Now, when the snake comes onto the scene, yeah, sorry, in that place, Adam and Eve were completely dependent and, tr- and fully trusting in everything that God was to them as their authority and as their king. Now, onto the scene comes the snake. As the snake comes onto the scene, we see a deference of trust. The original sin was not disobedience to eat the fruit, it was distrust. They didn't trust in who God was, and they chose to trust what the snake told them to do. And so it was the deference of trust. In that place when the when the deference of trust happened over to the snake, over to the kingdom of Satan, we then and then through disobedience then sealed that deal. We came under and for forevermore as we are born, we are born under that rule and authority. That's just the way it is. The Bible tells us that. They chose not to trust God and so they trusted in Satan and forevermore they came under that rule. And we are the products of that. Now, praise God, we're going to get into this. That's not the end of the story, obviously. That's why we're not here. That's why we're here. Um, But I just want to look at this. As Paul outlays it in Ephesians, um, can we flick to the next one? Thanks, mate. Okay. Ephesians, from verse 1 to verse 3, Paul outlays the way this kingdom, this rule under Satan looks like. That they were living in and that people are still living in. Okay, it looks like all of us are born there. We don't get a choice in the matter. That's where we start. That is our starting point. The nature of it is is that it gratifies the self. The sinful nature. The NIV says that, that Uh, translate that as sinful nature the Greek word is sarx, it means flesh so it's our desires, our base desires our pleasures Um, and it says that we follow that Uh, again the Greek word means to uh, spend our time or be consumed by we're consumed by uh, by our base desires and our base natures that is how we're created that's not how we're created that is how we are born it wasn't the original plan though And by nature of that, because we've deferred our trust, uh, or those before us deferred trust over to the snake, over to Satan, we are then come under, we are objects of wrath. We are born the objects of wrath under, under God. And that sucks. But that's our starting point. That's our starting point. It looks a lot like this. Life is all about me. My pleasure and comfort are all that's important. Does that sound familiar? That's what the world preaches to us. That's what the world tells us life is all about. It's all about my pleasure, my comfort. It's all about me and gratifying my desires. So that's what's at work. That's what we're born into. That's what we're born into. Paul then says. For those of us who have come into trust, who have come into belief in Jesus, who have placed everything, all of our hope, all of our everything onto the completed work of Jesus, we trust Him and we've come into relationship with Him, we are called the children of God. That is how we are called the children of God and no other way. And it says that it looks like this. We've been raised up and seated with Jesus. That sounds good. We've been raised up. This is not a future thing. Look at the context. It's now. We have been raised up and seated with him. As we've been raised up and seated with him, another way to put that is we have been declared royalty. We're royalty. When the most well-known piece of scripture in all of the world, John 3.16, when we are born again, we are born again into a new family Paul's going to, outline, going to get into this a little bit in a minute we're born into a new family that family by its very nature is royal and so we are now under that rule and that, that kingdom we are therefore royalty when we come out from under that and it's produced by grace and faith God in his mercy Paul says Made a way. We're about to celebrate that in a couple of weeks at Easter time. Jesus did all of the hard work for us. By grace, undeserved favour. The Greek word charis. Undeserved favour. We didn't deserve any of it. We don't have to work for it. He made the way. The door is open. And by faith, we choose to join with that. See, we've got to bring our faith to it. He's done all of the hard work. Grace has made a way. The door is now open. And it's up to us to bring our faith to that. We're going to have a look at the nature of faith and our faith response this morning because that's where it all starts. That's where it all starts. I could get up here this morning and there's a a wonderful list of stuff in this in this book about who we are in our identity in God. Now through Jesus. And it's wonderful. We're chosen. A bit of it was up there before. We're chosen. Where we are royalty. There's all of that. We we're heirs now. All of this stuff. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. The starting point is faith. The starting point is faith. And we must start there. We're going to. I'm going to show you why. But we must start with faith, and we must bring our faith to grace. Bless you. It's pure gift. We didn't, we didn't have to earn it. We don't earn this. We simply move into it. Jesus has done all of the hard work for us. Um, a little bit later in uh, Ephesians 2 there, it says that uh, Jesus uh, destroyed and abolished the law with its commandments and its regulations. He, he destroyed it, he abolished it. The Greek is emphatic. There's, I, I love the Greek language. There's, it's emphatic. To be abolished means that it's, it's done, it's finished, it's to lose all of its potency, to be completely destroyed and obliterated. Jesus did that so that we wouldn't be bound to it anymore and live under this rule and reign. We would then move over to become children of God. By grace, he made the way. Gospel 101. And it... Oh, that's right. And then he goes on and he says, if we do this, we become God's workmanship. That's a great word in the Greek. That work is poema. Poema is where we get our word poem. We are God's poem. There's an elegance and an intimacy that comes with that. As we become the children of God by faith, by grace and by faith, we become God's poem that he is steadily writing out. For some of us, there are lots of different poems, and that's what's so unique about them. Some of us are haiku. Some of us might be something else. I don't know all the poems. I wouldn't have a clue. But in all of it, we're a love sonnet. God is writing the story of his love in us as we choose to let him do that and become the children of God. Okay. Let's keep reading in Ephesians 2. No, let's not do that. I changed my mind. Got you all excited. Let's not do that. I want to talk about faith. I just feel like the spirit's telling me to leave all that stuff behind, and let's let's zero in on this. Uh, verse eight there. Verse eight there. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves; it is the gift of God. So we're going to zero in there for a bit. Our response is twofold there's two aspects to our response of faith. There's the initial response of faith that happens inside of us. And then there's what we do with that. So we're going to have a look at that for a little bit. Can you flick the next one over? Okay. Our word faith comes from the Latin word fides, which comes from the Greek word peace days. Peace days in the the New Testament Basically, well, not basically, emphatically means to place, one's, to place one's trust in someone or something based on the trustworthy evidence of the nature of that someone or thing. See, today, we are being told by people such as Richard Dawkins. Everybody know who Richard Dawkins is? Yep. People such as Richard Dawkins that faith by its nature is blind. Blind. That is not what the word faith means. Faith is not by its very nature blind. In fact, blind faith is very, very dangerous. But that is not what faith means. Faith is based on evidence. Faith is trust based on evidence. To give you a couple of general life examples, I have faith in Naomi, my wife. And I have faith in her because of the evidence that she can be trusted. You see, we don't marry people that we don't trust. We don't choose to enter into that if we don't trust them. It's based on the... And, and there needs to be a cumulative... Ev- for some of us, that for some people, that might be a week. In a week's time you, or a couple of days, you know that I can trust this person. That's wonderful. The, the time period is not important. What's important is that there's evidence there to support it. So the evidence is, is that I can trust Nay and she can trust me and so we enter into that relationship it's based on evidence, I have faith in her and my car I have faith, I trust that my car is going to work sometimes that's a little bit shakier but it's still, I mean we do, we we rock up, we turn the car on and we go to work we just, we wouldn't go and turn the car on if we didn't think it was going to work we, we put our trust in that vehicle to get us to work. That's faith. Now, for, for me, when I came to faith in Jesus, it was right over there where Ari was sitting. He's sitting right there, right at that spot is where I got down on one knee and I said, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. That was because he stood right in front of me and he spoke to my heart and I had an encounter with him And he beckoned me to trust him. His grace was extended towards me. He extended his grace towards me in that moment. And I said, yes, I'll trust you. I choose to lay my life down and I choose to trust you. That's the beginnings of faith. It's never blind. Blind faith is very dangerous. Blind faith is the kind of faith that causes young men to fly airplanes into buildings. It's dangerous stuff. And no one in this place is working on blind faith. I can say that pretty confidently because it was, it's never been preached here. And I'm so thankful he's not in here right now. I'm going to embarrass him a little bit. And I'm so thankful to Mr. Dave Hockey that he did not give me a weak grace gospel. It was by that man preaching the gospel to me, and he said, "You know what, mate? You've got to lay it down and trust Jesus. You've got to trust him. If I had been given a weak grace gospel, just exchange the lives, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that wouldn't have done it for me. It was all or nothing, and I'm so thankful for that. Can you flick the next next slide over, Jake?" Then there's a secondary response that comes. The initial response is faith. The initial response in that encounter is, oh God, yes, I'm going to choose to trust you. And then the rubber has to hit the road because it's all wonderful in that moment. And it was, it was an amazing moment. And I hope that many, all of you have experienced that. And if you haven't, then you're going to get it today. But for all of us who have experienced that, it's the most amazingly surreal and there is nothing else that's going on for you in that moment, isn't it? As, as I was there on one knee, I didn't know that there was anyone else in this room. I didn't care. <laughs> because in that place I was meeting with Jesus. But then there's a secondary response. Because it can't, our life doesn't live out there in that moment there's a secondary thing that needs to happen because if we try to hang on to that place and live in that initial wonderful engagement, we're going to find life quite tough because that's, that's, not, how, that's not how it works. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, the wonderful theologian who was executed by the Nazis, he wrote in a book, if you haven't read this book, grab a hold of this thing, it is a humdinger. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And the very first line in this book is when Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. The secondary response of faith is that we die. Jesus said, I am the door, or, I am the gate in the NIV. He says, I'm the gate when he's talking about um, the sheep. The sheep know my voice. You know that, that scripture? Um, the sheep know my voice in John 10. And they listen to me. And he says, I am the gate. Praise God, by his grace, that gate is open always. But we choose whether we're going to go into the pen or out of the pen. This is where the rubber hits the road. We choose whether we're going to live inside the pen and find our identity inside the safety. I'm not going to use the word pen anymore, that's (laughs) terrible. Where we live inside of the safety of being a child of God or whether we choose to live outside of that by not placing our trust in Jesus. And I think, I'll get to that. The door is always open though but it's going to cost us everything we have to stay inside. The gift towards us is entirely free. It's a free gift of God. God's grace towards us. But to stay there is going to cost us everything we have. See... A classic evangelical model is the exchange of lives. You exchange your life for Jesus and he'll give you his life. And that's wonderful. That's true. That's biblical. We'll preach that thing forever. But it comes at cost. And we can't, we can't overshadow that. It's going to cost us everything we have to stay there. And we need to choose for ourselves whether it's worth it or not. Jesus never hid this cost from anybody. In fact, it was the one thing that made a lot of people run away from him. They were drawn in by who he was, by um, the the glory of his majesty in human form that was still there. They were drawn to God in Jesus. And then all of a sudden, they 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 were invited to lay it all down. Oh no, that's too hard. I can't do that. I like my life. I don't want to give it up because God might take something off me. Well, that just says that we don't know who God is. Because our God does not want to take things from us. He wants to bless us. He wants to love on us. What kind of father wants to not give good gifts to their children? If if I had, in my means, the ability to be able to give absolutely everything to my daughters, I wouldn't hesitate. Unfortunately, I don't. (laughs) But that's okay. God does. He's not withholding from us. Now, again, for me, in order to do this, to lay everything down, to die, it cost me the one thing in my life that I was most passionate about. And that hurt. I had to give up a football career for him. He asked me to. I could have kept playing, but because he asked me to and I was fully in, fully in, I did it anyways. It took nearly 10 years for me to get healed up enough to be able to enjoy the game I love again. But I was not going back to that thing. Because I knew the cost and I knew that somehow in there even though i might not have been seeing it at the time if i continued to follow if i continued to lay down my life if i continued to stay close not only would things work out for my good romans 8 but that they would be very very good and they have been 12 years i've been hanging out in this place and if you had asked me 12 years ago what my life would look like now i would not say like it does Not a chance. But it is the best possible result. It is better than what I had in my head. Way better. Way better. This is the dilemma of the rich young man in Matthew's Gospel. Um, Matthew, the, the Gospel of Matthew, was written to the church in Rome under the persecution of Nero. This Gospel is a Gospel aimed at people whose lives are on the line. And Matthew tells them, all the way through it, there's an emphasis all the way through the gospel, of the totality and the completeness of following Jesus and the cost of it. Because these people were under intense persecution. Intense. If you don't know much of the history of that, then it would be worth a read. These poor people were being rounded up, put in cages on poles oil thrown on them and lit up to light up the the roads of Rome. They were crucified by the hundreds. And the Romans had this wonderful idea of this iron chair that was sitting on top of a furnace and they would stoke it till the thing was red hot and then they'd make people sit in it as a form of execution. The Roman historian Tacitus records that uh, this was apparently for the, the burning down of Rome, the city of Rome. And the, Ro- the Roman historian Tacitus writes that the, the, the chief reason that Nero gave to round up the, the Christians, the people of Jesus, was not arson, but hatred of humanity. This is the context that that gospel is written into. That's the context that people are hearing these stories and the story of the rich young ruler and then in Matthew, Matthew 10 whoever does not take up the cross and, fo- cross and follow me is not worthy of me this is, the, this is the urgency and the intensity of the call of Jesus and yet at the same time there is incomparable joy in laying it all down it is not morbid I'm just trying to lay it out for you this is the reality of the situation but there's something better because we are declared the children of God and we now come under the full inheritance of that rule and reign. Our identity is there and joy is found for us. Martin Luther, I love this story. Martin Luther, uh, a guy, uh, the 15th century reformist, uh, a courier guy came to his door one day and knocked on his door with a package for, for Martin and when Luther opened the door the courier guy goes I got a package for Martin Luther and Luther said Martin Luther's dead <laughs> the poor courier guy what are you going to do with that Martin Luther's dead I don't know why he said that but that was the reality of how he lived his life he lived his life as though he was already dead you know when I came When I I gave my life to Jesus there, when I chose to trust in him, I knew that right there in that place it was going to cost me everything I had. And it's going to cost all of us everything we have. But the rewards are not just eternity, the rewards are here and now. Some of the things that I've seen, some of the things that I've been a part of, I would not trade them for a second people coming to know Jesus, people being healed, the captives being set free. It's just like in the book and we get to live it. We get to live it out. But it's going to cost us everything we have to get in there and stay in there. And so the decision that we need to make is, is it worth it? Is it worth, it? Is it worth laying everything down and not just once every day of our lives this is not a thing that happens here just now this is something that we live day to day is it something that I'm prepared to lay down everything I have for the greater glory of knowing knowing Jesus as Lord Philippians okay can we chuck this quote up here George Ladd, the, uh, the modern day father of kingdom theology and the man who influenced John Wimber more than anybody, wrote this. Now I've got to find it. He wrote Taking up one's cross does not mean assuming burdens. The cross is not a burden, but an instrument of death. The taking of the cross means the death of self, of personal ambition, of self centered purpose. In the place of selfish attainment, however altruistic and noble, one is to desire alone the rule of God. I hope that I'm not making this seem burdensome because it's not. This is just how we stay in there. We need to be able to let go and hold everything lightly. To be able to let go of everything that we have, even the things that we hold most dearly. And it's to the degree that we do that, that we're going to know who we are in Jesus. Because all of the time, if we're trying to fight that, if we're trying to fight the full surrender of all that we have in that faith response, when we're actually fighting between two kingdoms that we had up there, we're fighting between the two, and we're choosing to either be inside or outside, and we're confused about which way we're going to go. Do I, oh, oh, that's really nice, and I'd really like that. I'm going to go over here for a little bit. But I don't find any fulfilment over there in whatever, cars, movies, whatever. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy cars and movies. I enjoy cars and movies. But they don't own me. It's it's an issue of ownership. And so where where are we going to choose to place the fullness of our trust and ownership of our lives? Jesus says, lay it all down. Give it all up. Give it to me. And I'll give you my life in return. I know this, this was a struggle for me for a long time, living with a foot in both camps. And I think it's a problem for all of us who live in this great southland of the Holy Spirit because we are a blessed land. We are a blessed country. I love this country. We are blessed in it. And for many of us, we, we, we don't live with want. Or a lot of want. We all live with want. But not a lot. But we've got this instant gratification culture and nature, which says that if you just want it, go get it. And there's nothing wrong with getting it if it doesn't own you. If it owns you, then it's a problem. What does that mean? Does, does it own you? If you could not live your life without something, it owns you. One of the biggest things that's going on right now is one of these doobies. And phones. I know people who cannot sit down for five minutes without picking up their phone and jumping on Facebook. No, that's not me. It nearly was. It nearly was. And I found myself doing that. I found myself going and picking up... I found myself doing that. It's like I'd sit down and instead of... Wanting to talk to my father in heaven, I sit down and I go, I gotta jump on Facebook. Bad. <laughs> Bad idea. And I managed to catch it before it owned me. We can still be owned as Christians, don't, don't fool ourselves on that. So if it owns you, then you're actually living with a divided heart. That's, that's, that's a hard word to hear. The good news is that the door's still open. The door's open and it's always open. It's never going to close. It's always open for every breath that you breathe. It's still open. And so no matter where you find yourself this morning, if some of this stuff is resonating with you and you go, oh yeah, this, maybe I haven't fully given all of my life to Jesus. It's something I'm still holding on to. There's opportunity, the, the door's open, the gate's open. You can come in and you can let go of that thing. Now, you might not want to let go of it. That's a different issue. You don't have to want to let go of it. Simply by recognizing it and choosing to get let go of it, we'll find freedom. Okay, we're going to bring this thing into land. Grace has made the way open. Grace has given us opportunity to step into our true identity as the children of God. It is the starting point. When we bring our faith to that, we enter into everything that we watched in that and more that we watched in that little clip earlier on. But it's got to start there. Let's just, let's stand and pray, Father. Father, thank you. Thank you that you made a way. Thank you that even right now, as we all stand before you, that Romans 8 tells us that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from your love. Absolutely nothing. The gate is open. By your grace, by your mercy, you have made way and provision for us to become the children of God. And you've called us and asked us to give all of ourselves in response to that. Father, we just want to acknowledge that sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that's hard. It's hard to let go And yet, you ask us to do that. So, just right now, we want to lay our hearts before you and ask that your grace and your mercy would meet us right where we are right now. Meet us where we are. Show us once more your love. Let us encounter your presence once more, even right where we stand. For it was to your joy that you did this, for your joy, for your joy that you beckon your children home. You don't want to take things from us. You don't want to be the party pooper. You want to give us life and life in its full. That's what your grace is extended towards us. And as we we give ourselves to you fully, wholeheartedly, you take what's broken in us and you turn it into life. So Father, right now, would you, by the power of your spirit, just begin that conversation with us of just where we're at? And as you do that, would you let us know that everything's okay? No matter how far, no matter what's going on inside of us, if there are areas that we haven't given over to you, you're not upset about that, you're not angry about that. You just want your kids to come home. So just now, in the name of Jesus, I speak to every condemning word and every work of the enemy that wants to bring shame and condemnation and I break its power. Because you have no place here. Let the love of Jesus reign. And Father, as you put your finger on those things I thank you that you do it gently with love and with mercy and you call us and invite us to let go of them and to trust you fully, 100%. So Father, thank you that you've made a way for us to do that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right. We're not done yet. For those of you who just in that moment there, you can sit if you like. For those of you in that moment there, there are things that the Spirit of God would want to highlight to you that need to be put to death, that need to die then I invite you to come to the front I invite you to come down and we're gonna do that together we're gonna join with you in celebrating that because as we let go all of the angels joy and they sing and they celebrate So. This may also just be uh, something simple in terms of you just...